Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Sarah Bailey. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands in, in Australia, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Sarah Bailey is a Melbourne-based author and advertising executive. Her debut novel, The Dark Lake, won the 2018 David Award for Best Crime Debut, as well as the Ned Kelly Award for First Crime in that same year. Sarah joins us on the show today with her new novel. It is a standalone thriller called The Housemate. In 2005, Ollie Grove's life is a hot mess. She's comfortable bouncing between partying, life as a junior reporter, and sleeping with a married man. And so it is one morning when she stumbles into possibly the biggest story of her life, the notorious housemate homicide. Ten years later, Ollie looks like she's got it all, on paper. That is, until the housemate homicide case is reignited when one of the missing housemates turns up dead, dragging up ghosts from the past. Ollie is back on the story, but what did she miss ten years ago? Join me as we discover Sarah Bailey's The Housemate. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. I We were talking off air about all the little bits and pieces of this story that I love, but I want to introduce people just to the broad outline. Now, in 2005, Ollie Grove's life is a hot mess. She's comfortably bouncing between partying, life as a junior reporter, and sleeping with a married man. And it is on one of those mornings that she stumbles into possibly the biggest story of her life, the notorious housemate homicide. Ten years later, though, and Ollie looks like she's got it all on paper. And then the housemate homicide case is reignited when one of the missing housemates turns up dead, dragging up ghosts from the past. And Ollie is learning that paper may not have the future she thought it did. That was a little, that was a little nod to one of the big discussions there, Sarah. I, I'm sorry for the really bad pun. You have crafted an absolutely compelling mystery here, but it's also a potential minefield for spoilers. Uh, so I want to start with the backdrop of The Housemate. So Ollie's a print journo. She's not particularly coping in 2015 with the rolling digital revolution. Now, the trailblazing, so it's 2015, the trailblazing true crime podcast that like everyone's listened to and some of us twice, Serial, it was less than a year old back then. But we still perhaps couldn't quite see how pervasive this format was going to be. You team Ollie up with an ambitious digital creator, Cooper. What fascinated you about this, like, especially in the sort of podcast true crime era, this seemingly transitional and seminal period? Yeah, I, I think that the um, dynamic between Ollie and Cooper is sort of representative of the wrestle between the old and the new in the media landscape. So I, I find that really interesting and I deliberately sort of set the book um, a couple of years ago because I think at that particular point in time it was a real cross, kind of a crossroads moment for a lot of um, those traditional journalist institutions and they had to kind of decide if they were going to jump on what was possibly a bandwagon and was maybe a bit of a novelty 
and invest in it because obviously it's really expensive to invest in all these new media channels and platforms and technologies or if they were sort of going to hold the line and stubbornly hope and assume that everyone was going to um, find a renewed love for traditional journalism. So I think I think having spoken to a few people in the industry, that was a, a bit of a heady time in that in that sense. And obviously we kind of know what's happened. So we know that all of these new media channels have exploded and we know that they've become incredibly popular um, and a huge part of the media landscape and very respected. You know, people are winning Walkley Awards based on, you know, podcast journalism. So it's not as if it's a flash-in-the-pan novelty endeavour. But Ollie in 2015 is desperately holding on to um, the traditional world of media that that she's always been a part of and that she thinks is proper journalism like she says that quite a few times um so yeah i just i think that that was very interesting to explore and um cooper's kind of naive enthusiasm and you know abundant optimism that this all of these like different types of media will happily coexist um yeah i just think they represent those two different schools of thought and um, as characters they kind of clash um because of it which i think is you know fun from a tension perspective i mean i've i've got a few friends from 2ser who have actually gone on to win walkley's for their journalism i mean you know shout out to the incredible work of podcasters and for podcast nerds like me this is this is such a great discussion like uh, would it be is, is this is this a murder mystery that also has an incredibly compelling fourth estate discussion or is it a fourth estate discussion that kind of looks a little bit better if there's a murder involved (laughs) Well, you don't I, have to answer I, that. <laughs> it wasn't intentional to sort of uh, comment, I guess, particularly on the state of journalism and, and its, you know, relevance or not. But I, I do find it really interesting and I'm fascinated by the whole kind of um, discussion around that topic. And I think particularly in the last couple of years, it's become even more kind of, of a hot hot area to sort of explore because of, you know, Trump sort of, I guess, elevating this concept of fake news and everyone sort of having to decide where they put journalism in this current era. Um, and then, you know, the internet complicates everything in good and bad ways. So, yeah, I think that topic is just um, eternally interesting. And I think it just was a nice um, side thread to the murder mystery because I guess it did call into question the way people consume information, the way that they um, interpret information, the responsibility that journalists have to present uh, information and stories um, to the public. Um, so, I mean, unlike my other crime books, um, which were more focused on the responsibility of detectives, I guess this one explores the responsibility of journalists um, who do become part of the story in, in some sense. You know, they, they do have to be very careful about the way they present information because that is a big part of um, shaping public discourse. So it's not to be sort of taken lightly, I think. Mm. All right, so it's definitely a mystery. But, uh, I mean, buckle in, dear listener, because I do have a few more questions about the journalistic side of it. As a reporter, Ollie has a, com- a different set of resources at her disposal, as well as limitations to what she can do compared to traditional detectives, and that's very much the space that your previous novels have occupied. What challenges does writing a, a true crime fiction um, and, a, and a lead investigator who is a reporter, what does that present to the way you, you craft and lay out your story? 
it is, I think, more difficult. I found it like um, almost frustrating at times not being able to access, and obviously it's not me, but the character not being able to access the same kind of information that a detective lead protagonist would be able to access. So you have to kind of approach things from a slightly different angle. And I was probably a little bit worried when I was writing the book that because you're sort of chipping away from the outside, it can ha- it can be potentially difficult to feel like there's the right amount of progress on the case. Mm-hmm. And I do remember sort of when I was editing the drafts thinking, oh, is this kind of moving um, forward enough and quickly enough because she's not quite able to get in and really understand, you know, phone records and just the, the types of things that cops can have access to quite quickly. Um, but, you know, she does have a helpful cop friend. So that was, I guess, a bit of a, a, a way to um, expedite some of that information. Um, and I guess the other thing is too that this story becomes not just about solving the mystery but also the way that she considers the story, the way that that's presented, the narrative of that story so it sort of becomes twofold. It's not just the sort of what, what happened, it's also the how she chooses to sort of um, update people on what she knows. So, yeah, it, it kind of changes the the focus a little bit from a traditional crime novel, but definitely different having a journalist character versus a cop who, who just does have a lot of access to information in a different kind of way. Mm. And there is absolutely that love and I guess that appetite for the true crime approach, which so many people love. Um, I have completely lost the thread of the question that I was going to ask. I was, I was actually, no, sorry. I, just as an aside, this was something that um, I've been observing for a few years. Uh, a hurdle or perhaps of contemporary crime is technology. Um, so many, so many authors have talked to me about how, Instant connectivity, mobile phones in our pockets make so many traditional crime scenarios just completely untenable. You seem to have taken a look at that and said, no, hold my beer. Let's make this a little bit more difficult. You are writing for 2021 about a story in 2015 referencing 2005. Technology has changed an enormous amount. You have to you have to kind of navigate three different periods of technology. Was that in your mind? Were you... Were you frantically Googling what on earth could, you know, old first-generation mobile phones do? Like, how did you how did you work with that? The answer is, is yes. So I definitely had to deliberately at times sense-check what was possible in 2015 because, because we're living in 2021. You start taking for granted what you can and can't do and it can be really difficult to recall a time when you couldn't do the things that we can do now. So there were definitely a few instances where I had to sort of stop and, and think, oh, no, actually, even five years ago, we couldn't do that. that. That technology wasn't around or that application wasn't around or Facebook didn't have that, you know, um, extra um, de- development in built into it. So I kind of had to undo some of the um, things that you just take for granted these days, I suppose. Um, so there was definitely sort of a bit of um, fact-checking along the way and even things like um, podcast um, popularity and numbers and what was actually happening in that sphere in 2015, I, I had to sort of remember and go back and, and research a little bit. Um, but I do think that um, from a technology point of view, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Like I think um, 
a lot of writers do avoid writing in current times and they do set their books, you know, 10, 20 years ago because you avoid a lot of the CCTV and you avoid a lot of the phone tracking and, and you can kind of navigate a more simple world, I guess, and it can be more just purely about the crime um, as opposed to the actual technology and what sort of the, the systems and, and layouts that the world has given us can sort of facilitate. But I kind of look at it a different way. Like I wouldn't be scared to write a book set in 2022. I think you just have to then change up the way that the crime is done. So, you know, I think a lot of there's a lot of, um, you know, DNA evidence, for example, is pretty inarguable. Like it is either there or it's not. But then I guess you can kind of push that and go, well, what if someone was to plant DNA evidence somewhere? And then how does that impact the way that the crime is solved? Or, you know, cybercrime, I think, can be pretty interesting. People can hack facts and change what actually happened, but make it look like, you know, something didn't happen. So people are still conducting crimes is the way I kind of tend to think about it. So it's obviously always possible to navigate a system. I don't think there's ever going to be a time where that doesn't happen. So you just kind of have to change up the way that your particular crime that you're documenting can work. Um, but, you know, cops and, and robbers have been forever outsmarting each other and I think they, they will keep doing that. Um, it's just about finding the, the believable thread and you can't be lazy, I guess. You can't kind of do the whole, well, you know, that person was tracked on camera so therefore the crime's solved. You know, you, there's got to be a twist or a, was the footage fake or when was it actually recorded? So you, there's there's other things, I guess, that you have to then dig a bit deeper on, um, less on face value potentially. Too much uh, too much use of technology and your novel becomes more of a pamphlet. And, of course, the real challenge of writing anything in 2022 is going to be how we deal with um, the aftermath, hopefully the aftermath of coronavirus. You have very um, astutely reminded me that there is a crime that we probably should we probably should mention. Now, when a, a when a body is discovered on a remote Melbourne property, the housemate homicide from two thousand and five case is opened back up, and the story is that one night in two thousand and five, three friends' lives meet in a shocking tragedy: one dead, one missing, one accused of the crime. The story draws everyone in. Literally, the the whole city is transfixed, and Ollie is obsessed with the case. It's an absolute sensation. What what draws us to the macabre details of stories like this? I just think that it's there's something about narrative um, hooks that are as true in fiction as they are in real life. And, you know, we would all be lying if we said there wasn't a real-life crime that hasn't grabbed our attention for lots of different reasons. Sometimes it can be personal projection. You know, if you grew up somewhere and something happens, you, you obviously feel a connection to it. Um, if it sort of seems like someone who is similar to you, you'll sort of probably project some of those emotions onto that crime. And then I think there's just the stories that have interesting constructs to them. So with this story and the housemate, I guess the notion of three young uh, female friends um, all seemingly happily, you know, living together and having good relationships, suddenly having their lives kind of explode in this terrible way one is killed, the other one is missing, and the other one is clearly involved in some way. It's just a really interesting premise, and I think people would absolutely want to know what happened. 
um, and instantly want to know if someone was good or bad or, you know, involved in something sinister. So it sort of just sparks our curiosity, I guess, at, at a really base primal level. Um, I think especially when there's females involved, it sort of feels like, well, that doesn't seem like a, a violent outburst that someone's just sort of lost their temper. Uh, it sort of feels more complicated than that, I think. So I guess that was the kind of intention of setting up a story around this these type of ingredients. Um, and then because it wasn't clear, the outcome was never resolved, there's that unfinished business element that kicks in and I think unfinished business is a real problem for people you know humans don't like things that don't neatly close Uh, it it messes with people that's why you know missing people cases are so sort of harrowing and awful because that possibility of hope is awful kind of taunting people for years so I think people want to know why they ideally want to know how as well, but why is definitely really important. And, uh, yeah, I guess this case has all of those aspects to it. So um, while it's a fictional uh, situation, I'm pretty confident that if that story played out in the real-life media, there would just be an insane amount of attention and everyone would have an opinion and the backstories of these girls would be poured over and people would, you know, be pulling up old photos of them and kind of doing their own uh, investigating based on those. So I think it's pretty reflective of the way we devour interesting media stories. It's particularly intriguing that you you dangle before the reader from the very beginning that the case has been solved, but the solution is not satisfactory. So we, we have an even more compelling mystery. I'm particularly interested in the psychology of your story. And before we, before we put Ollie and your other characters on the couch, though, I want to ask a bit of an establishing question. Do you write your mysteries with the intention that your readers might be able to solve them? Like, is there a fair play element? Are there are there clues that if the person were to look back would say, I see what you did there? I think so. I find it funny. I often um, will have reviews or people will sort of say to me, oh, I solved it halfway through or I, I, I sort of felt like I figured it out but I didn't know exactly how it all happened. Um, and sometimes I think people can be quite critical when they're saying that, like they're sort of like, well, I solved it halfway through so therefore your novel failed. Um, and I kind of think that's a, an odd way to think because the way I kind of think about all mystery books is that there has to be um, – an answer. So you have Mm. to get to a point where the author has decided what happened and who did it and why and how. And sometimes those things can be slightly vague and not completely served up on a platter to the reader, but you generally have a resolution in a crime book that kind of is one of the constructs of the genre. So there's going to have to be a possibility that you will figure out what happened because there can only be so many possibilities. So Unless you, like, rip a mask off Scooby-Doo style. Yeah, which I think would have its own issues from a um, satisfaction perspective. But Mm. most crime novels will have some sort of resolution. And I think most good crime novels, for for me, have, you know, maybe five, six plausible possible kind of outcomes and, um, you know, criminals and good guys, bad guys, however you want to kind of describe it. So the reader potentially will guess which one of those it is because you have to have laid out enough realistic clues 
for it to be feasible. So if you've um, got if you've got like six plausible suspects, that means one in six readers just playing the odds are going to be sort of going, that was unsatisfactory, I guessed. Exactly. That's exactly the way I look at it. So, yeah, for me it's not really ever about going, well, if you've guessed it then I've completely f- failed. I mean, it, you know, if it's really obvious and everyone guesses it, I guess that would be pretty terrible. But, like, for, for occasionally people to say, oh, I was pretty sure I knew what was going on and I was right, I'm like, great, you know, I mean, that's that's fine too because at least that means that the book was set up in a way that there was a plausible outcome that mm. uh, the threads were dotted throughout, someone could connect them. Um, and I think the best thing is for me when someone says, I had an inkling of what happened but I wasn't sure and I had to read the whole book to kind of check that I was right, I don't see that as a problem either. I'm, I'm sort of like, well, you, you weren't sure. So if you were sure that would be different. But, uh, yeah, if you had to kind of read the way through to understand whether or not you were correct and sort of check all those different aspects mm. of it, um, that that's fine for me. From my point of view, that's fine. All right. We're absolutely going to get to my inkling in just a wee sec. <laughs> I, I wanted to note, though, from what you were just saying, though, this is where this is where crime and true crime, and particularly the fictionalization of true crime, which is, in a sense, what you're doing here. Um, in, in within the crime genre, you are crafting true crime. True crime always dangles the possibility that there won't be a solution. We could listen to that ten part podcast series, and the final episode says this case is ongoing. Um, where do you where do you find yourself sitting? With that I mean, do you listen to true crime podcasts? Are you a are you a um, a connoisseur of the genre? So I think just to answer your sort of the first part of your question, I think that people can be uh, drawn into crime stories or any kind of narrative really for different reasons. So it's it's often and I guess most traditionally that crime construct is um, who who done it. You know who did the thing, who did the awful thing that we know. Um, happened Um, and that definitely from a um, humanity and justice perspective I think is what we often read crime for we want to kind of know who did the awful thing and we want to make sure that they are punished and everything's righted in the world so there's that kind of basic narrative thread and a lot of um, crime podcasts obviously focus very much on who did it and then what happened as a result did they get punished all that sort of stuff was justice served Um, But I think increasingly the kind of psychological exploration of why someone did something is becoming increasingly popular. So I think there's a lot of um, true true crime podcasts that you you sort of know right from the start who did it. That's not something that they're trying to kind of crack the case on, but they deeply explore the why Mm. someone was motivated to do something and they can trace back to, you know, childhood and whatnot and kind of really try to unpack the motivations and possible kind of reasons um, that someone acted in a certain way. Um, And then I guess there's the other um, kind of uh, approach, which is the how they did it. Um, And I think that's interesting for some people because people, I think, find a sort of a satisfaction in forensically unpacking process and kind of um, just the machinations of how someone went about doing something bad Um, And then I think there's still like an interesting psychological overlay is that, you know, even after all of that effort and process, they were still compelled to do these awful things. So it can kind of become like a bit of a dual investigation. And then I think there's just um, a trend recently to look back at historical crimes that haven't been solved and that 
maybe never will be solved. Um, and there's, I don't know if that's sort of almost like a, 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 like a kind of respectful way to say that, you know, we're sorry that these people have had to live with this lack of closure for so long. And, you know, could you solve that crime in the modern era with the technology we have today? Um, I think there's that that becomes more about that unfinished business and almost like a desperate kind of plea to go. Could anyone possibly, based on the knowledge that they have and then the the today sort of information, is there one last ditch chance that someone might have something that could make this case suddenly clear? Um, so I just think it's different. I think it's different um, emotions that those podcasts are tapping into. And I like all of them, I think. Like I like different aspects of the different types of them. You know, I definitely think podcasts where um, the people are still alive who played a role are really compelling because you sort of can't help but wonder if they know what happened. And I think Teacher's Pet was really interesting for that particular reason. You know, it was obviously so popular. And I think the fact that a lot of those people were still alive just makes that case seem mm. it's so frustrating that, you know, it's not been solved when it feels as if it should be able to be solved. And I think that really calls on people's sense of um, justice. So, yeah, different. I like them for different reasons, but I, I think it's int- you're right. Like it's really interesting that they don't have to necessarily have an outcome to still be um, compelling stories. Mm. And, of course, never say never. I mean, it's only, I think, yesterday from our day of recording that in America they've declared they've discovered the identity of the Zodiac killer. So go true crime. Um, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's not like it hasn't had some of its own success. So I think increasingly people are also respecting it as a genuine uh, course of action into having justice be served. So, yeah, super fascinating kind of times, I think. Mm. And, of course, you are beautifully segueing all of my questions. Thank you. It's almost like I've given you an advanced copy uh, because I want to talk a little bit about this psychology aspect. Clues are important. Don't get me wrong. Enormous satisfaction in being able to solve the mystery. Um, I am never going to be someone who complains about that. I I think that's a beautiful challenge in, in reading. But the psychology is what drives me forward. And I noticed that as I read each of your characters, and as they were exposed to the increasingly extreme circumstances, they all had their little tells that were revealing or ultimately revealing of who they really are. What's important to you in crafting a character's psychology? Uh, I mean, I, I lo- like I really love creating characters. It's one of my favourite parts of writing. And I don't, I think, in a way, um, give a lot of thought to really meticulously building out characters and profiles and things like that. I think I do try to kind of just write and do it as instinctively as possible. And I find that's the best way for me to bring characters to life. And then I think you start to know how they they talk and what they would wear and sort of what motivates them, what's important to them. I think what motivates them is really key. Like once you get that clear in your head, that's kind of the the blueprint for how they act and how they react as well. I think, you know, if someone's got um, something to prove or if someone's trying to atone for past fails or whatever it might be, you really start to see how that affects how they behave in different environments and how they respond to other characters that you've created. So I really enjoy it, but I don't, 
I don't do a lot of it in a really strategic way. It is quite kind of organic. And then, you know, I guess in the editing process, you can sort of take a step back and tweak bits and pieces here and there to make sure that the characters seem seems consistent throughout. I think that's a big part of editing is kind of making sure that the threads of the people that you've created are talking evenly and consistently and having the right journey as the mm. book kind of progresses. Now, of course, I want to bring us back a little bit to the story before we before we ultimately say goodbye. The case has reopened. Ollie is back on the story, the story that she first began 10 years ago. But she also has to compete with a colleague who is breaking a, a shocking scandal surrounding a prominent politician. And thank goodness you wrote that subplot, because otherwise Australia might not have any reference for Polly's behaving badly at the moment. Um, it's like the, the new New South Wales Victoria thing. Um, so... <laughs> The other thing that is really um, deeply concerning, Ollie, is this digital revolution in news that we've already talked about. She sees a decline in quality journalism. And the media takes a battering for a perceived lack of integrity, impartiality. Do you think the current media environment is playing out Ollie's worst fears or has that quality journalism, are we still seeing that quality journalism um, playing the important role that it, it should occupy in society? I, I just think it's so mixed. I think mm. that, yeah, in some ways her worst nightmare is playing out six years later and she would be horrified to sort of see how it's all um, eventuated. But then, of course, there's just pockets of incredible journalism and incredibly incredible people that have mm. such integrity and who are constantly, I think, holding people to account and doing a wonderful job of informing people of um, the real stories so I just think it, it's on a scale and, mm. and perhaps it's always been on a scale to some extent. I guess the difference these days is just that the platforms are so accessible mm. to so many more people that there's less of a filter for quality and potentially accountability as well. I think it's very hard for the law to keep up with the pace of um, the media landscape and how quickly it's developing. So it's always a couple of years behind. Mm. Um, codes of ethics and, um, you know, reporting kind of standards are very, very hard to manage um, at, at, at this point in time. There's just too many avenues of people being out there being journalists. Um, so, yeah, I think I think she would be worried, um, but I think she'd also be hopeful um, and it would just depend on where she's paying her attention as to <laughs> what she felt was actually kind of happening out there. I think I want to finish on a bit of a meta note. There's a flashback moment um, of interior clarity that you give us from the alleged killer. She says, when it all comes down to it, what goes on record in a court of law is simply a version of reality, just like everything else. So Alex's testimony, Ollie's reporting of it, and even, again, in that meta kind of way, your storytelling in the novel are all ways that we're trying to understand some of the big questions in life. Is this something you want from your stories, to offer a, a version of reality that helps people understand the world a little bit better? I think so. It's, I mean, again, it's sort of not a, it's not a conscious, deliberate quest. It's not, it's never a case of me sitting down and being like, right, I want this story to, you know, answer some meta questions about life and death. But I think um, when you're writing crime, because of the nature of it being pretty pretty high stakes and extremely 
um, emotional um, and your characters being in situations that they are forced to question all things, I think you can't help but get to a place where you're sort of um, putting them in, in, in moments where they are kind of reflecting on life and death and humanity and good and bad and things like that. So I think it just sort of plays out naturally in the stories. Um, and because my books have got a couple of, ten, well, they tend to have a couple of different threads and plots through them, I, I guess it's easier to explore some of those big questions um, because it's not just a simple kind of um, action thriller that's sort of moving along at pace and people aren't really stopping to think. They're just doing. Um, yeah, so because my characters think and I, and I kind of um, include that in the story, I guess what they think about tends to be pretty deep and meaningful because of the circumstance they're in, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you so much for indulging that last question because I know I know it can actually be very hard to, uh, and many writers have reflected me, to write from a didactic position. It's better to let the story evolve. But it is inevitable that stories, if they're good stories, if they're stories that resonate, they're going to speak to something in us that we are going to want to examine. And um, I feel very fortunate that I get the chance to uh, to ask creators like yourself those those questions. You're welcome. Yeah, no, I think... Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel very lucky to be able to write stories that force me to think about some of those things as I'm going because it's not often that you stop and really dig into that kind of thought. So it's it's nice to have characters that kind of prompt <laughs> prompt me to do that as well. I am speaking with Sarah Bailey. We've been discussing her new mystery uh, thriller, fourth estate novel. Not really, but I loved that aspect of it. It is called The Housemaid. Sarah, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much for um, supporting The Housemaid and having me. That's it for this great conversation with Sarah Bailey. Sarah's new novel is The Housemaid. It's out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. That is me, Um, and if I can just have a brief aside, if you are listening to this episode of the Great Conversations podcast, as it comes out, or in October, to SER, the radio station in Sydney that hosts Final Draft, is going through its annual Radiothon. It is a time when we ask our community of community radio listeners to join us in this kind of creative journey and become a supporter If you are interested, if you just want to find out a little bit more about it, go to 2SER.com and click on Supporter and uh, maybe, you know, be a big part of the family that is our community radio station. Stay in touch with Final Draft. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You'll find us at Final Draft 2SER. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, there is a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now.